The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Together, if you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter. Uh, and just going to briefly, for the next 30 minutes, just look at verses 6 through 9. Really looking at joy and thankfulness. And just by way of brief introduction, as you're turning there, if you're not familiar, I know Tilly taught the first Peter today, so I'm hopeful that I can just give a little outline and you say, oh yeah, I remember, Tilly taught this. Um, you know, these, that Peter's writing this letter to, not a church, but to Christians. These Christians were coming under persecution, about ready to have more persecution. And so as Peter's penning this letter to them, he's, he's watching Rome on fire, and he knows that this persecution is coming to these believers if it's not already there already. And so instead of giving them an excuse not to act like Christians, Peter actually tells them why, even in the midst of this persecution, you need to continue to act like believers. Um, and, you know, maybe this past year that's been you, right? Hard times come. Some things are brought on us because we make poor decisions, some things are just brought upon us because we live in a fallen world and, and uh, sin abounds and things happen to us. Um, and these believers that Peter's writing to, they were persecuted because they believed in Christ, because they repented of their sin, because they put their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. And so persecution came upon them. It wasn't for their own fault. If they changed their ways, they could have stopped the persecution. Similar to our day today, you know, sin is celebrated, sin's put on display for everyone to see. Sin these days is put on display for everyone to worship as well. So we know that being a believer doesn't exempt us from trials. Being a believer doesn't exempt us, exempt, exempt us from these things that come. But do you know that being a believer, you're the only one that actually can say your suffering has a purpose? And this is what Peter is telling these believers here. You're not just randomly suffering. You're not randomly go through trials. They're there in our life for something far more than just to make our life harder. You know, Peter's focus here is not just looking at the suffering themselves, but greater than that, he's saying you as a Christian are the one who can have joy and can have hope in the midst of your trials. And so in this text here, we'll read through in just a moment, really there's just four things I want to point out, four divine truths which give us, which give us joy during our suffering. Four divine truths which give us joy during our suffering. And so if you just look at 1 Peter 1, we're just going to read these verses 6 to 9 together. And it says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And so really just that first couple words, in this you greatly rejoice, that's our first 
First point, what's the first divine truth that God gives us here, or that Peter gives us here, is that God is on your side. And it's such a simple truth that we forget. How many times have you been in the midst of a trial and you've said, is God against me? And Peter here builds this case. If you were to read verses three through five, you would see anything but God being against you. In fact, as you read through those verses, the thing you realize is you were simply the recipient of God's good mercy, his great grace upon you, doing nothing to earn it or nothing to deserve it. What has God given us? What is this that Peter says in this? What's the, what's the this, you have to ask? Well, the this is what's before that. The Lord God, because of his mercy, caused you to be born again, promised a resurrection from the dead because Christ was resurrected. Furthermore, he says we have an inheritance, and not just an inheritance, but do you know that God himself is guarding your inheritance? God himself protects your inheritance for you. So why do we rejoice? We rejoice because God is on our side. We rejoice because God is holding on to our rewards. He's holding on to our inheritance. And we know one day we will behold what he has. Notice what Peter doesn't talk about. He doesn't encourage these Christians, hey, wait a minute. Some of you guys may be getting a job promotion. Rejoice in that. Some of you may be finding a wife or a husband. Rejoice in that. You guys are getting ready to buy your first home. Rejoice in that. And those things aren't necessarily wrong, but they can't be the source of our joy. Peter starts with this divine truth that should undergird all of our joy as a Christian, and you should know this firmly in your own heart. God is on your side. Think about it this way. God did all of this for you. You read, you read everything that God did in order for you to be saved. He's not going to now stop being on your side. He's not going to stop being for you. No matter what you're going through, God is there. God is on your side. He not only saved you, he gave you rewards, he keeps those rewards, and guess what? You get to enjoy those rewards once you're in heaven. True joy among sorrowful tears is an authentic Christian experience. We know we can't escape the world, but we know that we have already overcome the world because our hope is in Christ, not in this world. So not only is God on our side, but really the rest of verse 6 and verse 7 then we get to see our second divine truth, and that's that trials are necessary to prove our faith. Trials are necessary to prove our faith. After he talks about rejoicing because God is on our side, he says, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. And I find this interesting. If you were just to read it and you'd take out those, those first little phrases, he would say, in this you greatly rejoice, you have been distressed by various trials. But you can almost feel Peter's hesitation. He's saying, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, he's not trying to jump right into the trials, but he's trying to let them know it's, it's, it's not just trials that you're going through. There's something behind these things. First of all, he says, even though now for a little while, before you get your hopes up, Peter's not talking about the length of the trial, <laughs> The trial or suffering that you're in could last your entire life here on earth. What he's actually talking about 
in comparison to what awaits us in heaven, anything we go through on this earth is nothing but a blink of an eye. What Peter wants us to understand is a true perspective of time. Because oftentimes when we're in the midst of a trial, when we're in the midst of suffering, we have a tendency to stare at ourselves and to think, is this ever going to end? Peter is reminding us, one day it will be over. It is just for a short time. When you think of eternity, and then you think of the time we're here on earth, it's not even a small speck on the whole line of time. The time that we'll spend here on earth in our trials and suffering doesn't even compare with the eternity we get to spend in heaven with Christ. Then Peter says, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So not just the time aspect, but I want you to understand what he's saying here. In the midst of our trials and suffering, we can oftentimes forget a very, very important point. He's saying the reason you need them is because God says they're necessary. We can be very thankful that God has told us that our trials are necessary. But we cannot be thankful if our focus is always on what we're going through and not on the God who's promised to give us exactly what we need. And I think Peter puts this here for two reasons as I read through this. First of all, I think he puts that here so we know our sufferings and our trials are not the result of some impersonal force. It's not mother nature came upon us. It's not, oh, that's just fate that's coming upon me. That would mean you'd have no purpose, no reason for the trials, and that's hopeless. Peter tells us right here, they come upon us because God himself has deemed them necessary. So you can know and be assured that those trials that are coming are coming from God who is your loving Father and who is on your side. You can rest assured our trials will never last too long, and you can also rest assured that they will not end prematurely. God will keep us in that trial until it accomplishes what he desires to accomplish. And not only is it coming from a loving God, I think the other reason Peter puts that here is because believers, we oftentimes forget that suffering is actually the pathway to the kingdom of heaven. Remember what Paul said in Acts 14, he was traveling around and it said that he was strengthening the souls of disciples. How did Paul strengthen the souls of disciples? He exhorted them to continue in the faith. How was he exhorting them, though? It says, and Paul told them, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. The pathway to the kingdom of God is through many tribulations. And Paul didn't shy away from using that to actually encourage the saints to keep going. Oftentimes we think God has given up on us because of our trials, but in fact it's those trials in and of themselves that show we're on the pathway to eternal life with Christ. Your trials may be corrective in nature, you may have sinned, you may have needed to get back on the right track, they may be the result of something else, something you haven't done, that we just live in a world that's sinful. But the most wonderful truth the Christian has is they did not come upon you by accident, it wasn't fate. It was by God's loving hand. They are there to teach us something to conform us more into the image of Christ. God doesn't want his children to continue in a life which isn't growing more and more into the image of Christ. 
I believe there's nothing more than God's desire for us to become more like Christ. And when we realize the tool that he uses are the trials in our life, we are thankful because the end is what his goal is, which is for us to become more like Christ. And then in verse 7, we have the purpose statement. You see that, so that there. When you read your Bibles, that's what you should look for. What's the purpose, right? So the thing before it, the so that, the purpose of, and now we have the purpose. So why is it that he says, in this you greatly rejoice? For a little while you've been distressed by various trials. Well, why is it important that we're distressed by various trials? So that, or for the purpose of, what does he say? He says there, the proof of your faith. So that the proof of your faith. And then you skip the middle part there and it says, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you're in the midst of a trial. You're going through a trial. You're going through a, a season of suffering because God's saying, I want, I want you to know your faith. God doesn't guess. He doesn't say, I wonder how this is going to work out. I want to see if this person is going to be faithful. He knows your faith, and so he puts you in these trials so that you will know your faith. Therefore, trials are a good thing. Trials keep us trusting God. They burn away our self-confidence. They, they drive us to our Savior. Trials and suffering are there to keep us on the narrow path. Psalm 119, 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now, the psalmist said, I keep your word. Also, Peter compares and contrasts what's considered authentic faith with then gold in verse 7. And I like when he says, first of all, your approved faith is actually more valuable than gold. Why is it more valuable than gold? Because gold is going to perish at the end. But your faithfulness will continue into eternity with Christ. You're not going to take gold with you into the new heavens and new earth. They'll do you no actual good. And then secondly, your faith like gold is purified through fire. I went and I looked this up online and I get to watch how they purify gold. Fantastic. And it, it was interesting because very, very uh, non-biblical website and they said, you wouldn't believe this process is actually in the Bible. And I said, actually, I would believe that the process <laughs> is in the Bible. Proverbs 17.3, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. This is what God is interested in. I also found it fascinating as I was reading about how to refine gold because I just have so much gold that I need to refine. Uh, it says that you can either use fire or chemicals. And I found it fascinating because they said fire is only used in mass quantities of gold. Chemicals are used when it's a smaller amount. Whether it's true, I don't know. But it's what the refinery said. So the mass produced, the mass amount of gold is put into this fire by a man. He keeps a watchful eye over it. If it stays too long, they obviously lose the gold. If it goes, goes out too soon, it's obviously full of impurities and it's not worth as much. The temperature's over 1,000 degrees, so this man has to be very attentive to what's going on. And this is the picture that the psalmist, that Peter, that scripture uses time again. This is God's watchful eye over you to make sure that your faith is purified to perfection. 
So what is Peter saying? What does this mean for us? Trials are there to bring out the impurities of our faith. Trials have this crazy way of showing us which part of our life is actually the weakest. The areas of our life which we thought were good, but some areas that we need some growth in. And I like this little saying, when the sponge of our life gets squeezed, we'll see what's inside by what comes out. What that means is, suffering does not make you sin. Suffering shows you what was in your heart already. It just had the opportunity now to come out. And this is God's mercy to us, that our hearts would be purified, that we would become more like Christ. And I think as Peter's writing this, he's not thinking these believers are going to fall away. There's no hint of these Christians are going to give over to their trials. In fact, historically, we know that many of them did not. The wording that Peter has here actually shows just the confidence in the fact that God is the one who is holding on to them, not them holding on to God. In fact, these trials which are coming upon them and, and exposing their faith in God are, as Peter is saying, the grounds for their joy as they're on their way to heaven. Peter's faith is not that these people are going to make sure that they pull up their bootstraps and get through it. Peter's faith is that God himself holds on to his people even as they're going through these trials. So what's the purpose of knowing that you have genuine faith? What's the purpose of, of knowing that your faith has been proven. God doesn't want people walking around thinking they're okay, but they're not. God loves us so much that he wants us to be either all in or all out. No lukewarm. That's one of the goals of the trial. So you can see your faith as a professing believer. Look what he says in the end of verse 7. That it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the focus of our genuine faith isn't just for today. The focus of our genuine faith is at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's on judgment day. That's when it's all said and done. Peter wants everyone to be able to stand before God. And when our lives are examined and laid bare before our creator, there will be praise, honor, and glory. This shows us Peter's unbreakable connection between our faith in God and our faithfulness here on earth. Simply put, the one who remained faithful during times of trial and persecution, the one who has faith, which is going to be found to result, is going to be found in the result, praise, glory, and honor when we see Christ. And like one author puts it, the main point is that believers would rejoice in the prospect of a promised honor. True faith will obtain honor from God. And this is what Peter is saying here. Lest you think you have to be perfect. That's not what Peter's saying at all. Peter's saying, this is what we do. This is where we're going. This is how we do this. This is where we keep our mindset. So our obedience to the Lord through our trials here on earth has far greater consequence than just trying to get through something during the day. And I think the most wonderful part of this is that we're not alone in our obedience. We're not alone in our faithfulness to God. Because even here, as we go through these trials, as we go through this suffering on earth, did you know that God is with you? 
There's an interesting point here. I've read through this several times. Peter never says that Christ is present with you, but he says Christ is going to be revealed. So what he's saying there is, and I think there's a real purpose here for Peter saying this, the term revelation demonstrates that Jesus is present with his people in a sense. And he's, vis- he's invisible, if you will. But in the end of the day, the reward for the faithful believer is going to be able to see the visible Lord. Christ is with us now, but one day we'll see him face to face when our faith actually becomes sight. And on that, we look at our third divine truth here in verse 8, which gives us joy in our suffering. We can look to Christ. We can look to Christ. Did you know that the unsaved world has no relationship with Jesus Christ? The unsaved world is not called to come and commune with Christ. They're called to repent of their sin, but they're not called to have the relationship that you as a believer have with Christ. That's special between you and Christ. When we suffer, we oftentimes focus on what we lack, not on what we have. We look for joy in gaining something that we've lost instead of focusing on what God has said we already have. And this is why our trials are good for us, because they make us see our need, and then as believers, we reorient ourselves and refocus our attention back on Christ. These churches that Peter was writing to were full of believers, these believers he was writing to. They had never seen Jesus, but yet he says they loved him. The same's for us today. Nobody in here will stand up and say, yes, I, I've seen Jesus face to face. Peter is commending them because they were faithful to Christ even in their persecution, even though they had never seen him. And I think this is a lot coming from Peter because, you know, Peter had seen him. Peter did converse with Christ. And he's commending them. He didn't say, even though I saw him and you didn't, you're still doing well. But you can understand that they would say, yeah, Peter actually hung out with Jesus for many years. And we never did. And he's saying, no, but you're still moving forward. So as Christians... We have to remember our belief is not based on what we see, but on what we know to be true. Oftentimes, in the, in the face of persecution, what happens? We stop remembering what we know to be true, and we let our minds start to wander on things that we shouldn't be thinking about. We go down the path of the what-ifs. What if this happens? I'm going to build this narrative in my mind, which most likely will never happen, but it's the worst-case scenario, and I want to be prepared for it. So I'm going to sink myself in there for the next six months. So essentially you're thinking on things that are not true. You're not believing the truth that Scripture says. And this is what Peter is telling them. Even though we've never seen Jesus, even though we've never sat down and talked to him face to face, do you see what we're commanded to do? We're commanded to rejoice. Christians who suffer are not sunk into the ground because of the troubles in their life. They love and rejoice in Christ even though we have never seen him. And the Christian's life is so full of this hope that one day when it's all done, we get to gaze upon the beauty of our Savior. And we know joy and suffering are always mingled together in our life experiences here. They're almost inseparable throughout the Scriptures. But remember this, Christian, 
we always have more reasons for joy than sorrow. Though sorrow comes upon us, there's never going to be more reasons to keep being sorrowful than for having joy as a believer. Jesus said in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you so that, there's our purpose statement, Jesus spoke these things for the purpose of his joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Just to give you a 30-second English lesson, your joy may be made full actually has nothing to do with you. It's something that is passively coming upon you. These are the things that Christ does for us. How do we have this joy? How do we be made full if it's a passive? How do we do nothing but yet we still have Christ's joy? Look at verse 8. There's this little phrase here in 1 Peter. Do you see what it says? You do not see him now, but believe in him. So to believe in Christ is to love Christ. And I love this quote. It says, the more faith can know of Christ and the more such knowledge possesses the heart, the stronger the believer's love for him becomes and the more joy they exhibit. Do you understand what Peter is saying here? The more that we get to know Christ, the more our desire is to be obedient to Christ, the more we are automatically going to become more joyful and thankful because we get to know more of Christ. And this is how we can rejoice in our sufferings. This is how we can be thankful in the midst of our troubling times. Don't get me wrong, the Bible never downplays our suffering. The Bible never downplays the reality of sorrows. But the Bible gives Christians the means to face our trials with a joy that Christ gave us. I thought it'd be appropriate. I like this little history lesson. I think oftentimes in, the, in, in our current culture, the idea or the concept of suffering and persecution is very, very far removed. We've been very, very blessed for a very, very long time. And the idea of, of suffering coming upon us for being Christians, we can't comprehend. It's not our fault. We just can't comprehend because we nor anyone in our family has been through this type of persecution that the church has faced for thousands of years or a couple thousand years. So I like to read, how did these other believers fare during hard times of persecution? And then during the 17th century, you had these French Protestants called the Huguenots. And they were murdered by the Roman Catholic Church because they worshipped God outside of the Roman Catholic Church. They spread everywhere around the world even here to the States. They fled, but not all of them were able to flee. And so the ones that didn't flee, they were captured and they were put in, into slavery. And one of the places that the Roman Catholic Church liked to put them was as galley slaves. So it's meant that you would be the under rower in a boat. You were chained to a bench and you would row until you died and then they'd throw your body over and put somebody else there. And there's many French Huguenot museums, and one of them, uh, specifically in France, has an oar that was from one of the boats. And this guy, woman, etched in it. He said, my chains are the chains of Christ's love. So you can imagine in the rowing of a boat, chained to a bench, knowing you're not going to leave until you die, and you're only there because of Christ's love. When we suffer well, we bring much glory and honor to Christ. 
If we praise the Lord during and through the pain, the proof of our faith shines forth to the glory and praise of God. Your joy in the midst of your trials reflects what your heart believes. That this life is not final. The world is certainly not your home and your confidence in God is not going to be easily shaken. And then that leads us to our final divine truth which gives us joy in our suffering in verse 9. We know the outcome of our proven faith. You are assured something because of Christ. Circling back to verse 6, if you're still asking your question, why do we want trials to prove our faith? It's so that we can rejoice today knowing that this life is going to be over and we are going to be saved and there will be no more trials, no more suffering, no more death, no more sickness. And best of all, we will stand forever seeing face to face with our Lord and Savior. If you're here tonight and you're a believer and you can't think of one thing to be thankful for, let me, let me encourage you with this. If you're born again, the outcome of your faith is sealed. You are guaranteed to be born again through the blood of Jesus Christ. You will be in eternity with your loving Savior who has kept you through all of this life so that he can save you to the uttermost through all of eternity. And as Christians, we have this love, we have this joy, we have this hope because of our vision of the future salvation which is guaranteed to us. Do you see what Peter says there? We will receive the outcome of our faith which is the salvation of our soul. The things we go through today will be yet a distant memory thousands and thousands and thousands of years. What we face today is worth it because of what it brings us tomorrow. Our love and our joy should be so deeply rooted in what is coming, the salvation of our soul, not in what we see here. What we see here is temporary and I want to end with this quote. I like this quote on these verses specifically by, by Spurgeon. And he says, Bear your sorrows bravely, for they are appointed of your heavenly Father in supreme wisdom. Bear them joyfully, for they will bring forth to you the peaceable fruits of righteousness. Pray with me. Lord, we do thank you with great joy we thank you, Lord, that we do have a purpose in our trials and our suffering. And Lord, even though on this earth they, they do take a lot out of us, Lord, you're, the sorrow that comes upon us is heavy at times. And Lord, we know that you know that. Lord, you tell us to come to you as we're weak. You tell us to, to come to you in your presence and to pray. And so, Lord, I, I do pray for those who are in these trials in the midst of suffering that they would come to you. And Lord, that and that they would find refuge knowing that you are a loving, caring, faithful Father. And so, Lord, we thank you for all that you have done this past year. We look forward to all that you have in store for us, and we praise you, and we just ask that you would bless our evening. In Christ's name, amen. The following is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org.